Turn to John chapter 14. We're going to be reading verses 7 through 15. And there are a couple of there are a couple of hard things in this passage. Um, as you remember, John is recording for us right now the time of Jesus' life, which is right before his death. It's during the period of the Last Supper. It's after Judas has left to betray Jesus, but before he has been crucified. Um, while Jesus is with his disciples. And so, as we saw last week, the disciples are concerned, they're fearful, Jesus is giving them hard things to deal with, like the fact that he's going away and they can't come with him immediately. Uh, And so, Then Thomas is speaking and he says, where are you going and and how are we supposed to get there? And Jesus says that, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then he goes on to this, he goes into this, passage that really sort of typifies the book of John in that Jesus begins to speak about his father and he begins to relate his work once again to his father and his relationship to his disciples and to us connected with his relationship with his father. And so what I want us to see right as we start, before we even read the passage, is I just want you to remember that we've seen this over and over again, Jesus emphasizing in the book of John his relationship as son of God to the Father. And so we have to have have an appropriate, accurate understanding of what that relationship is if we're to make sense of what Jesus says in this passage. And that includes having a doctrine of the Trinity. In the early church there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of fights and disagreements and arguments and so forth about the nature of God, because God is one, and yet we also have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? And so, if you go and you read Augustine's sermons uh, as he's preaching through the book of John, Augustine was way back, way, way, way back, right? So, early enough that that the 
the doctrine of the Trinity was still really being fought out in the church. And so if you go back and you you read Augustine's sermon on this, what you'll see is that he spends an entire sermon basically calling the people who are, well, the, the names are Sibelians and, and Arians, okay, but, but they're people who have gone to two opposite extremes in their understanding of God and the Trinity, and he calls them both to come back to the middle right way without crossing over the ditch into the other side. And so, what are those two errors? Well, the two errors are, on the one hand, saying that Jesus is a subordinate, different essence from the Father. So, he's not, he's not truly God in the same way that God the Father is. Okay? And on the other hand, you've got the people who say that there's, there's no difference whatsoever, that God is just sort of different forms of, of the same. Well, today there's still people who have rejected the truth of God's word with regard to who God is in regard to the Trinity. But it's not really something that's being fought out today. Uh, in, spite of, in spite of over, well, I guess it was about a year ago, it blew up into a big discussion among people who are all Trinitarians, all of them pointing their fingers at one another saying that, uh, saying that they're getting the Trinity wrong. Well, that matters. When you see somebody getting the Trinity wrong, you need to point it out and say, no, no, this is important. And that's part of what I'm trying to say here, is we have to approach this passage accurately understanding that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, and that he is of the same essence with the Father, that he is not somehow a lesser God, all right? And as long as we remember that, then we'll be, we'll be starting from a good framework, a, gr- a good basis for understanding Jesus speaking about his Father <clears throat> and making his relationship with the Father so central to his encouragement to us and to his apostles in this passage. The other thing that you would see if you went back and read Augustine's sermons is that they're very short. Very short compared to mine, anyway. But I think he was preaching every day, so you'd have to come... You'd have to come every day and get another 15 minutes. We're all about efficiency, right? We're going to compact it all together. Well, let's read this now. Please stand for the reading of God's word from John chapter 14, 
verses 7 through 15. Jesus is speaking. He says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So here's the three things that are hard in this passage. Well, there's, there, there's probably more, but the three things that stand out to me as very hard for us today are first, verse 12, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do. So if you believe in Jesus, you're going to do greater works than him. That's what he just said. The second one is verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. If any of you have ever prayed, you understand why that one is hard. And then the third one is, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And if any of you have ever tried to keep his commandments, you will understand why that one is hard. Because all of these statements... Start with if, right? If this, then that. And we don't like one side or the other of any of these three if-then statements, right? Well, it's not easy to understand these things, but it is easy to see how they connect together. If we believe in Jesus, then we're going to do 
the works that he does. That's the first part of that statement in verse 12. He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. <clears throat> the if then is implied, right? But I mean, there's, there's no escaping the causal, you know, the causality of the, the one statement to the other. If we believe in him, we will do works. Well, how does that relate to the other two? Well, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Believing in Jesus, as we've seen over and over again in the book of John, is to love him, right? And so, to believe in him, is to love him, is to do his works, is to obey him. And how does that relate to the middle one? Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. Well, it's easy to get off track with that particular statement. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. But the key to it is in my name, right? In my name is the condition under which our prayers are guaranteed to be answered. And so if you work your way back from each of these statements, what you see is that what Jesus desires to be done is what is going to be done. What Jesus desires to be done is what is going to be done. If we believe in him, we will do his works and greater works because he goes to the Father. Okay? What does Jesus want to be done? He wants his works to be done. Right? If we believe in him, We will love him, and our love will cause us to what? Do what he wants to be done. He has commanded us to do certain things. That's what he wants us to do. What he wants to be done will be done. And then asking in his name brings together the the nature of a name and what your name represents. It, re- it represents who you are and all that you are, your authority. So your name could be uh, described like it is in Little Britches as a character house. Isn't that what they call it? Character house. Your character house is your name. And when you, when you tell a lie, you're ripping boards off the side of your house. You're tearing down your good name. Well, Jesus' name stands for everything that he is, and it's a perfect house. And it's also a house that is filled with 
all the authority of God the Father. And that's, so, so we're, we're still working our way back, right? Jesus is saying, here's what's going to happen with you. It's going to happen because of your relationship with me, because of my relationship with the Father. And so what Jesus is doing is he's working, with, if you go back to the beginning of our passage, he's talking all about the Father, both to Thomas and to Philip, and to all the disciples that are there, and he's saying, if, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. The, the inseparability between Jesus, the Son, and the Father is the, is the preface to these hard statements to us. Jesus' relationship to the Father is the preface to these hard statements, and it's not like the thought has changed. It's not like Jesus is changing the subject. He's flowing right from one into the other because the the nature of that relationship between Father God and Son God is directly connected to the nature of the relationship that we have to the Son and the Father. And so the works of Jesus Christ are all the works of the Father as well. Right? You can't separate Jesus from God. This is why it's essential that we have an appropriate understanding of the Trinity before we we dive into the, the second half of this text. He's explaining the nature of the Trinity in the first half, in some ways, enough so that we can understand what is coming next. And so he makes a big deal of the works in the middle, the works that he is doing. He says in verse 10, uh, verse 11, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. What is he saying? I mean, he's he's being very kind, right? He's saying, here is who I am. Believe me, believe me when I say, I am in the Father, the Father is in me. Believe me because I'm saying it, and you know everything I speak is true. But even if if you, you can't grasp that, the works themselves demonstrate that I am God. The works themselves demonstrate that I am perfectly united with the Father such that everything that he wants, I do. And what Jesus is saying is that by him leaving, by him going to the Father the same thing is given to us. 
Not that we are made part of the Trinity, you understand, right? But that we are made sons of God. We are made one with him. We are united with God in a way that could not be unless Jesus went to the Father. And so God is glorified in our lives in the same way that God was glorified in the life of Jesus. By the works that he was doing. Because he loves the Father. Jesus' apostles, when we think about works, we often connect Jesus talking about the works that will be done uh, to the miracles that he had performed that demonstrate his unity with the Father, right? And even if you think only on that level, the physical, miraculous things that Jesus accomplished, it is true that the proof of his statement was given to the apostles after he left when they performed the same kinds of miraculous deeds. Do you understand? The unity that Christians have with the Father was demonstrated in the proof that was given through the apostles in those miraculous deeds. Jesus, when a woman touched the hem of his robe, she was healed. Right? But when Peter's shadow fell on people, they were healed. Why? Is it because Peter is greater than Jesus? Of course not. And so when Jesus says you will do greater works than these, even if you only limit it to the miraculous, that was, that was borne out in the works of the apostles. Performing marvelous, marvelous deeds. <clears throat> When Peter's shadow fell on people, it was the work of Jesus Christ in God, the Father, that healed them. Right? You remember when Peter and John healed the lame man in the temple? And they say, we don't have anything to give you, but in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. It's Jesus that is glorified by these works. It's Jesus' power that is, brought, uh, that is brought to bear on the world through these miracles that the apostles performed, right? And so when, the, when Peter and John are later confronted, that's what they say. They say, hey, it's Jesus. It's his power. It's not us. 
And yet today, we often want to make it about us. Today, we often want it to be about proof, proving something about who we are. But it's not just the apostles that Jesus, you know, and the miracles of the apostles at that time that Jesus is speaking of. He's speaking of every Christian when he says, He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. So what is, what is he saying? What are the works, really? Is it the miracles that Jesus is referring to when he says, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father? Well, in some sense, his works are his obedience. And yet, is your obedience greater than Jesus? Obedience. No. So what is he saying? Well, let's move to the next one for a second. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. What's he saying there? Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. <clears throat> Again, we want to connect this most you know, immediately to miraculous answers to prayer. Getting us out of, getting us out of a, you know, a spot of difficulty. And thinking, okay, well... You know, I can just ask him for anything and I'll get it. But is that what he says? Well, in the context, no. <laughs> Taken on its own, yes, right? But we know, for example, that even other places where similar promise is made, that there are limitations brought to bear. For example, in James, it says, but he can't waver when he asks. He has to ask in faith. Let not the man who wavers think that he'll receive anything from the Lord, right? So again, we take these two, those two things and we put them together and we say something like, okay, well, as long as, you know, I really mean it when I ask for it, and I want it 100% of the way, and I, and I really, truly ask hard, then it's guaranteed. And I know, you don't, I know that you would say you don't believe that, but then do you have any other alternate understanding or explanation of this passage aside from just going like, well... I think that Joel Osteen is retarded, so obviously it can't mean that, but let's read something else. Do we actually believe 
that when Jesus says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it, that he means it. And that when he says that we're going to do greater works than these if we believe in him, that we'll do it. And that if we love him, we will keep his commandments. As I've said, these are all connected. And ultimately, they all go back to the will of the Father being accomplished through Jesus Christ, through us. What has Christ's church accomplished since he left? Christ's church has accomplished the proclamation of the gospel throughout all the world just as he commanded. How has that happened? By him going to the Father and sending the Holy Spirit. And so if you ask in the name of Jesus Christ for something, you are asking for his will to be done. You're asking for him to put his name, his signature, on whatever it is that you're asking for. Does that make sense? And and to accomplish it by his word, his signature, his name. And so he will never put his name to something that is bad. And so you can't ask for anything bad. Period. Right? You cannot be selfish in your prayers, or they will not be answered. You cannot be seeking your own impure desires, like James talks about. Ask for, you ask and you don't receive because you have wrong motives, right? You, you can't be seeking your own lusts and expect that you'll receive anything from God because Jesus will not put his name and his power to accomplishing evil. He is not tearing down his house. He is building it. And that is ultimately what is being accomplished by his church when he says that we will do the works that he has done and greater works. When he was on earth, his message was limited to Judea and Galilee. But today, greater works are being accomplished by us as we proclaim his good news and as we demonstrate his will 
through our obedience, and as we seek through prayer that his will would be done. We are accomplishing great things for Christ. Now, when at the moment I say accomplishing great things for Christ, you all think of, uh, who is that missionary guy who said, talked about accomplishing great things for Christ? Can't remember his name now. But you think of, you think of missions, right? When, when we talk about accomplishing great things for Christ, I'm not the only one who immediately thinks of going out and, well, that's right, in a sense. That is the great thing. It's the proclamation of the gospel to all of the world. And yet what I want you to see is that accomplishing great things for Christ is, is not for Christ as much as it is in Christ and in the Father. In other words, as you live your life as a Christian, fulfilling your calling wherever it is, and for a substantial number of us, that calling is at home, right? And not just at home in your homeland, but at home in your house, Are you accomplishing great things for Christ? If you are fulfilling the will of the Father for your life, then this, that is the definition of what Jesus is speaking to his apostles about. In all three of these hard things, Our desires, and so what we ask for, are conformed to him and his will. And that's why anything that we ask in his name will absolutely happen. And that's why if we love him, we absolutely will keep his commandments. And if we believe in him, we absolutely will be accomplishing great things in Christ, in the Father. Our only access, our only approach to God is through Jesus Christ. There are all kinds of temptations that we face of ways to make our approach to God in some way besides through Christ. Okay? One of them is that we will go in a... uh, We'll, we'll, we'll just adopt superstition as how we think we're going to accomplish our, our will. 
And notice how it changes to our will the moment you're talking about superstition. You know, if you don't want, if you don't want to get sick, don't knock on wood. We haven't gotten it yet. Knock on wood, right? What does that demonstrate? Well, it demonstrates a desire to not get sick, right? It's pretty simple. But what else does it demonstrate? That we're not willing to actually go to the Father about it. Superstition is believing that there's some way for us to accomplish our will through some sort of mystical, magical power other than God the Father. But there is no mystical, magical power apart from God the Father, right? And so even if you say, well, I'm trusting God, And so I don't need to ask him for anything. What are you saying? You're saying you're saying that you have no need of him. You're saying that you don't need to go through Christ to him. You're saying that the uh, that the works that you're accomplishing are ultimately by your own strength, not by his strength. You guys understand that? You see that in yourself? When you go about your life living without any prayer, if you don't have requests to make known to God, it's not that you don't have needs. I know you all feel, you, you all have felt needs, right? Like, I really don't want this to happen today. I really don't want to get an F on this paper. I really don't want this. I really don't want that. Or I really do want this new car or this new promotion or fill in the blank. All the things that we do and we don't want, we feel those things, right? And yet what we don't want to do is submit them to the Father through Jesus Christ and say, your will be done And so we just, we just keep holding on to the desire without prayer. We go through our life. And what happens? That very act is saying, no, I'm not willing for this to be accomplished by the name of Jesus Christ. And really what you're demonstrating is that you have an idol, right? You say, well, no, but it's a good thing. And I say, yes, so so you have an idol, right? No, no, I mean, I'm struggling to... My, my desire is that I would go through this week without sinning in this way. That's the thing that is, that's, how can that be an idol? 
And I say, well, are you praying about it? Well, I haven't really. What is that going to accomplish for you to go through your week without sinning in that way then? Is it going to bring glory to the name of God? Or is it going to bring glory to your own self-restraint and willpower? Is it going to bring glory to your name or is it going to bring glory to the name of God? And what Jesus says is that everything he does is done so that God would be glorified. And that's why Jesus prays. You see that? And that's why we have to pray. And that then <clears throat> you pray, Father, lead, lead me not into temptation. And the answer is yes. So that his name will be glorified. Whatever we ask in his name, that will he do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That's the key. That's the key to all three of these hard things. God accomplishes miraculous things through his people. Not the least of which is our obedience to him if we love him. Let's pray.